If you would, open your Bibles to the 13th chapter of the book of Revelation. We're going to begin there this morning. Um, For our guests, we're in a series um, titled The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. Um, And this morning we're going to subtitle that The Ways of the Beasts. That's plural, because there are two of them, and of the, or of the Lamb. So, uh, Revelation 13. And I trust if you weren't, if you haven't been with us uh, for the previous messages, that you'll still be able to track along with what we're talking about. And if you aren't, feel free to come tonight. We'll have a Q&A. You can ask whatever questions you want as, as we go through that, or at least whatever questions time will allow for, I, I suppose, would be a better way to put it. So, um, Let's, uh, let's engage God's Word beginning in chapter 13 of the book of Revelation, John's Apocalypse, uh, and verse 1. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, and with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander His name and His dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them, and it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All the inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears to hear, or I'm sorry, whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming, up, coming out of the earth. And it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. That number is 666. 
Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of, a ru- of rushing waters and like the, uh, a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or, in their, or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of His wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever, for there, there will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the people of God, who keep His commands and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Your words are the words of life. Help us to hear their message for us today. Help us to understand the message that was given to the church, the seven churches in Asia, which is now being given to us and the church in all the world. Help us to hear your claim upon our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1992... Images of starving African children and mothers streamed across our TV screens on the evening news for months. Rib cages visible, bellies bloated, faces drawn to look half, like half skull, half alive, victims of starvation in a world of abundance. These images built the popular support necessary for the United States to accept a major role in a U.N. military operation tasked with ending the fighting in Somalia so food could be gotten to the people in need. The mission proved more difficult than imagined. While the violence raged, a picture of another victim was put before the American people, an American soldier who had been killed by a Somali mob, the mob now dragging his body through the streets of Mogadishu. Almost overnight, public sentiment for the operation reversed itself. Images are powerful. Journalist Lance Morrow, in the October 18, 1993 edition of Time magazine, wrote this, quote, 
The Americans have ventured into Somalia in a sort of surreal confusion. First, impersonating Mother Teresa, and now John Wayne. It would help to clarify that self-image, for to do so would clarify the mission, and then to recast the rhetoric of the enterprise. My concern is not with the self-image of our country, but that of the church. Sadly, this confusion as to which image we should impersonate, whether that of Mother Teresa or that of John Wayne, or for the younger generation, if you prefer, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, or as I would prefer, Liam Neeson. (laughs) To put it in the language of Revelation, we might say it another way, whether we should impersonate the image of the Lamb slain or the beast in all his power, is a confusion that infects the church. Here's what we're going to see today. Anytime rulers or empires demand allegiance to a way of life that is contrary to the Lamb and His ways, they have become the beast. Anytime people give allegiance to the beast and His ways instead of the Lamb and His ways, they worship the beast. We're going to explore our text under three headings. The beast out of the sea, the beast out of the land, and the call for patient endurance. Under that first heading, let's talk about the beast out of the sea. The word antichrist is found nowhere in the book of Revelation. Now that is not to say that the concept of antichrist is not found in the book. In popular lore, the antichrist, that's with a capital A, is a central figure in Revelation and is a singular entity that will appear at the end of time. To be sure, Scripture does refer to an evil entity in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we read the following, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching, allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now this person is indeed Antichrist, possibly even the Antichrist. However, Paul's purpose was not to tell them when to expect the return of Christ, but that they might not be alarmed as if it had already come and they missed it. Now, there's a lot behind that we could get into, and I don't have time today for that, but nonetheless. And although Paul tells us that the day of the Lord had not already come, He did not tell us that it would come while such a man of lawlessness was on the scene. Only that it would not come until he had been on the scene. It is possible, if we're just strictly reading the text, not reading anything into it, it is possible from what is said in the text that he could come at any time and and then that Jesus could come any time after the man of lawlessness came, even thousands of years later. It doesn't say it would be immediately later, just he's going to come and he has to come before. He didn't say how long before. 
He didn't say it'd be a week before, a year before, ten years before, or a thousand years before. He doesn't indicate that anywhere in the text. Now, my point is simple. These verses do not give us any hints as to when Jesus is returning. And this man, the man of lawlessness, is neither called in the text the Antichrist nor the beast. Though I would agree that he is Antichrist in nature. The word Antichrist, or Antichrist, plural, is found five times in the Bible in four verses. Four times in 1 John's, John's first epistle, and one time in John's second epistle. The closest those get to describing a singular Antichrist at the end of time is when John says, Dear children, this is 1 John 2.18, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. So John acknowledges that they had heard from somewhere, we don't know exactly where, but from somewhere, a singular Antichrist is coming. And then he says that they know it is the last hour because many had come. He neither confirms nor denies that a singular Antichrist will come, nor does it seem important to his discussion. I hope I'm not like harming your theology of the Antichrist. I'm just reading the Bible and trying to explain what it says. So that's just all I'm doing. <clears throat> Each of his other references to Antichrist in those letters clearly apply to multiple people, not a singular person. So there's only one reference to it in a singular sense, and that's that they had heard the Antichrist is coming. And all of those references seem to have little to do with the lore of Antichrist, which is popular today and which most of us are familiar with in one form or another. Now, back to our text. You might wonder, why have you been going off on the Antichrist? Well, here's why. Many say that the first beast of Revelation that we read in the first part of chapter 13 is the Antichrist, and that's with a capital A. And I do think we are correct to associate the beast with that which is Antichrist. For that matter, it is equally correct that this, to suggest that the second beast is also Antichrist. They're both very Antichrist in everything they do. The first beast personifies many people that function to rule the empire of that time, and now empires of our own time. And I offer that the second beast is the system which demands total allegiance to, or worship of, the first beast in all its manifestations. I'll just say that again in case it just flew by you or you're still trying to catch up with that thought. Okay, The first beast personifies many people that functioned to rule the empire of that time and now the empires of our time. And the second beast is the system which demands total allegiance to or worship of the first beast in all its manifestations. The first line of chapter 13 connects the dragon of chapter 12, Satan, the accuser of the brothers, with both the beast out of the sea and in a moment out of the land, creating a kind of unholy trinity, the dragon and the two beasts, if you will. The dragon's location on the shore of the sea, between land and sea, shows a, a much weak, weaker creature than the gigantic angel who stood with one leg in the sea and one leg on the land. I mean, like, the dragon's way down there sitting on the shore on the beach going, I think I can see him down there. This gigantic 
angel that we saw in chapter 10 who helped the little scroll, which I propose to you as the new covenant, <clears throat> reasons you know we talked about there, is a much greater and more powerful being than this dragon, Satan, who stands on the shore. The gospel would be voiced, as we saw in chapter 10, through apostles like John and others who would taste the sweetness of the gospel, but also swallow it and experience its sorrows and sufferings. The dragon has another gospel, if you will. And it will come through these two beasts, the empire that supports the rulers and the rulers themselves in some respect. Who is this beast? Well, the visions of Daniel 7 is where this language that John is using is all in the the, uh, book of Daniel, chapter 7. Daniel there describes four beasts which represented either the empires of Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. Those are one view. The other view is Babylon, Media, Persia is one empire, Greece, and Rome. Now, which four it actually represents is insignificant to our purposes here, so I'm not going to worry about that. It doesn't really matter. John captures aspects of each of Daniel's beasts in his description of the beast. It has ten horns, like Daniel's fourth beast. It resembled a leopard, which was Daniel's third beast. It had the feet of a bear from Daniel's second beast, and the mouth of a lion, which was Daniel's first beast. Of course, I suppose that we could conjecture that with the mouth of a lion, it can voice what the dragon is doing because he's a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. So it's appropriate that that's the mouth. John is saying that the empire of his time had the worst aspects of each of Daniel's four empires. And those were horrific empires to the people of God, no doubt. And as we'll see later... John has the Roman Empire in mind. And it's going to be very clearly stated for us later, but uh, he has the Roman Empire in mind. But he's not limiting it to the Roman Empire. I think uh, New Testament scholar Jamie Davies accurately writes this. He says, it, If this is a depiction of a political kingdom, as we should expect, then it is not merely the latest in a succession of empires, but one that embodies the worst of them all. One that embodies the worst of them all. I have no doubt that in our lifetimes, well, no, I'm sorry, I'm older than most of you, and and it even precedes me, but in the last century and a half or so, we could certainly say that it included Stalin and the empire of the USSR, but for many people it's included many other countries to include our own at times. Imagine if you were enslaved in this country for several hundred years of its existence as colonies and then uh, later as, as, as a nation. It was a beast, no doubt about it. We'll talk more about that, Lord willing, in a moment. As we see in verse 4, the beast has powerful military dominance. Who is like the beast, it says? Who can wage war against it? I mean... This beast is powerful militarily. Rome, specifically its emperors and ruling caste, waged war against God's people by the demand for worship and the claimed authority over every tribe, people, language, and ethnic group, or nation, as it says. Ethne. They didn't think nations in the same way we think of nation-states today. 
they were ethnic groups, they were peoples, they were, they, they were people that, they didn't have the same political setup as a nation today, so I'm, I'll make that distinction periodically. Ironically, though, the one who's hearing this read, remember, blessed is the one who hears the words of this prophecy because it was sent and it was read in the churches and they heard it. The one who's hearing this already knows that the Lamb will succeed in rescuing an innumerable, innumerable multitude from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages to be the true Israel. That was back in chapter 7. Back in chapter 7. And so... He's given authority over all of them, and yet the Lamb gets many of them and rescues them right out of the midst of it. Rome, I'm sorry, let me jump. It, it, it says here, the beast exercises its authority for 42 months. Now we know in the end we're going to see the Lamb slain beats the beast and all his military might. But the beast will exercise its authority for 42 months. Now as we saw Last week, when we covered, there's a lot to cover, but we covered chapters uh, 11 and 12. We saw there that this same period of time represents an ambiguous period, long enough to be sure, but with limited duration. And it's the same period of time that in chapter 12, the dragon will pursue the woman and her seed, which is the church. Okay. And there, in chapter 12, this... 1260 days, which is exactly the same in Jewish counting of 42 months, three and a half years. There, that period of time began at the ascension of Jesus to the throne of God. What we read in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through, uh, I think, 11 or 12 there. So I would propose that it's talking about the same period of time that the beast is operating. It's throughout this period of time, once Jesus has begun to reign. And, 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 and beasts come and go. And we even see that the beast had a fatal wound, or so it seemed, but now it seems to be back, <laughs> much healthier in, in the story that we read earlier. What is this beast? We'll see in a moment. Rulers of this world have exercised such authority throughout human history. The saints have endured such periods of violence against them, and in each instance they have come to their eventual demise. It calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. So who is the beast? We're told, let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. A man. The number is 666. Now, letters in both Hebrew and Greek had numerical values assigned to them. So, they would add up the values of each of the letters uh, in Hebrew or Greek to arrive at the value of the name that was given. Now, the Hebrew for Nero or Neron Caesar, as it is in Hebrew, has the numeric value of 666, Nero Caesar. Uh, the Greek numeric value, because it has one less letter that had the value of 50, is 616. And there's a variant manuscript. I mean, you know, the, we have a lot of different Greek manuscripts. That's how we know that what we have is, is accurate. But every now and then you can tell where somebody's added a variant as language changes and, and things go. And one of the variants has the value of 616. Well, it's easy to see why. 
If you're using Nero Caesar and you're dropping the letter because you're now in Greek and not in Hebrew, you get the value of 616. So the fact that we have two, one variant to the original, but both of them point to the same character, should be assuring we know exactly who John was referring to, and his audience knew exactly who he was referring to. So why does this require insight or wisdom? Here's why. Nero was long dead at the time that John wrote this. So how could this be Nero? Well, it could be Nero because Domitian, the current emperor, See, Nero was one of the worst persecutors of the church, and when he was dead, believe me, the church was relieved. But now, all of a sudden, Domitian seems to be a revived version of Nero. He's doing the same stuff. They thought they had been saved and rescued. But yet again, (laughs) yet again, he's beginning to persecute the people of God. Anytime rulers or empires demand allegiance to a way of life that is contrary to the Lamb and His ways, they have become the beast. Anytime people give allegiance to the beast and His ways instead of the Lamb and His ways, they worship the beast. Nero is a representation of empire at its worst, and we still see him represented today in various ways. Second heading, the beast out of the land. I use land instead of earth because it wasn't, the, the word, they weren't referring to the globe. We think of the earth as a planet, okay? They're, they're talking about the land, the earth in that sense um, is, is what's being referred to here. We, we use it that way. We speak of the earth as we're digging in the ground, but that's the way it's being used here. There were some mythical creatures in the ancient world that were often talked about in the cultures around the Jews. We even see those mythical creatures showing up in our Bible. Uh, Two of them in particular that I want to speak to are Leviathan and Behemoth. You may have heard of them. They're in Scripture, and the book of Job mentions both of them. Leviathan's mentioned a number of times in Scripture. Uh, Behemoth in the book of Job, but he's inferred in other places as well. Um, The modern era, that's the one we live in, (laughs) uh, has contributed to our understanding of Scripture by increasing access to historical information and language and documents of the time. Yet it has done much harm to how we read the Scripture. Um, The modern man has lost the art of reading Scripture as the literature that that it is. Inspired literature, to be sure, but literature nonetheless. It is not an inspired technical manual. Okay, it's inspired literature. Okay, and it's important that we understand that it's not an inspired technical manual. Um, so when you read about Leviathan and Behemoth, and here's what happens. This is over the last 500 years when Bible scholars are reading Leviathan and Behemoth, they're trying to figure out is Leviathan a crocodile and is Behemoth a hippopotamus? And the answer is absolutely not. <laughs> Nothing to do with those. Okay, <laughs> they're mythical creatures that represented chaos and destruction in the minds of the people of that world, okay? Leviathan was the serpent out of the sea. And in older language, you have him really referred to, in in Genesis, Yom, the sea. He calls the waters sea, Yom. That was in the ancient world, the place where Tannin, the dragon, and Leviathan, the beast out of the sea, dwelled, Okay? And the land is where the beast on the land dwells. So when you get to the book of Revelation, the very things you see hinted at in Genesis 1, they're still there, and they're being dealt with in their final form. 
if you follow me. So they're, 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 they're mentioned throughout. And it's important to think about these things as we go through Scripture because they're relevant to what's being talked about. Jews understood how that in the Old Testament it picked up stories of their surrounding culture and it recast the stories to show the truth. In the culture story, such cosmic creatures battled for dominance over each other. The truth is that God is more powerful and has control over the powerful forces of nature, which are often evil. They will not win. This way of recasting culture's stories goes all the way back, as we said, to Genesis, and it works its way all the way through. Behemoth, or behemoth, rather, was the beast on the land, and, and he dwelled in their lore east of Eden. It's just interesting, because east of Eden is where they got sent after they sinned. And east of Eden is where what tower was built? Babel, Babel same word for Babylon. Okay, so that's relevant as, as we get to this story. And here we find Leviathan and Behemoth, the beast out of the sea, beast out of the land, in league with each other. Now, maybe what is more relevant is the imagery itself, Behemoth, the beast out of the land was pictured as some sort of cosmic ox. Okay, now we might think, what in the world do you want to have a cosmic ox for? It doesn't seem very ferocious or anything. Um, and that's fair. <laughs> but the cosmic ox actually links it to the empire itself. Archaeologists have unearthed the oldest civilizations and have discovered that the harnessing of cattle, oxen if you will, is what allowed for people who lived in small clans to produce enough food to live together in cities. That is how they went from hunter-gatherers and small groups of people to civilized uh, uh, empires, if you will. You, you can't get from one to the other without a way of creating enough calories for the people to live on. And you're not going to do that any other way. So you have to have some beast that is going to allow that to happen, and that's where the ox plays in, which is why Baal is represented that way and, and others as we go throughout the civilizations of history. So it shows this connection to the empire in its very imagery, and it demands total allegiance. And this second beast seems to be, by what we read in our text, the propaganda arm, but I think more than that, it's the whole system that props up the first beast, the ruler himself. The message to the churches in Asia is loud and clear. The lamb slain will conquer these powerful and mighty beasts, the emperor and the entire system that props him up. Now, we've all heard the expression, you can't fight Uncle Sam, right? You just, you can't beat him. Why would you want to fight Uncle Sam? It's, well, imagine this, that's, that's just Uncle Sam. The beast of the Roman Empire, oh my goodness, to think that you could fight that, and yet... The lamb slain comes along and says, not only will we fight it, we're going to win. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, we're going to get slain. Yeah, what would you say? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. There's irony all over it. You see, the message of Revelation is that you must fight the empire, but only in the ways of the slain lamb. And ironically, you will win. At the heart of the system are values. A way of life rooted in what is important, and it could not be more opposed, the system of the empire, than, than it is to the way of the Lamb. I think, and I'm, I'm not good at pronouncing his name, but the, the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche uh, may have understood the spirit of Antichrist more than most Christians, and 
Indeed, probably more than many a theologian. In his book, The Antichrist, that's the title of the book, Nietzsche clearly articulates the ways of the Lamb better than many preachers, though he doesn't use the term Lamb itself. Sadly, he hated the ways of the Lamb with all the passion with which he could hate anything. He hated them passionately. He describes most clearly what it means to be Antichrist in this little book, against the kingdom of Christ in every way that he could be, and all that it stands for. Many today inaccurately ascribe to Charles Darwin the idea of the survival of the fittest. Uh, Not only did Darwin not come up with that idea, he was actually opposed to the very idea. He actually viewed one of the greatest qualities of humans as sympathy, which we would today call, to, to bring forward his language to our language, compassion, empathy, altruism, all things which Darwin actually argued could not have come about through some sort of survival of the fittest. Nietzsche, on the other hand, despised pity or compassion for the weak, viewing it as the worst thing that happened to human societies. He quite accurately assigns the cause of this terrible thing as Christianity, indeed Christ himself. He wrote this, and this is just a small paragraph to sample what's in that book. What is good? Whatever augments the feeling of power. The will to power, power itself in man. What is evil? Whatever springs from weakness. What is happiness? The feeling that power increases, that resistance is overcome. Not contentment, but more power. Not peace at any price, but war. Not virtue, but efficiency. The weak and the botched shall perish. First principle of our charity. Referring to the weak and the bots shall perish. First principle of our charity. And one should help them to it. What is more harmful than any vice? Practical sympathy for the botched and the weak. And then he long dash, Christianity. He understood what it meant to be Antichrist. He understood it fully. The meek shall inherit the earth would be to him the worst conceivable concept. It's almost as if in writing the Antichrist, he's responding negatively to Charles Dickens' uh, A Christmas Carol, saying, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Scrooge was right. Nietzsche's ideas in the early 20th century were described as, quote, the warrior ethic, and the Nazi party carried his torch. Though many have embraced the ideas of Nietzsche, rarely has anyone articulated these ideas because they'd be labeled insane rather quickly. It doesn't take Nazis or the Klan to embrace such hatred for anything weak. The scriptures themselves attest about Jesus. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. The empire, the beast, is surprisingly not beast-like. No, no, no. Beautiful, full of majesty to attract us. It has much in its appearance that we should desire it, and it offers us a path to freedom freedom from suffering and pain. But it does demand our total allegiance, our worship. 
Anytime rulers or empires demand allegiance to a way of life that is contrary to the Lamb and His ways, they have become the beast. Anytime people give allegiance to the beast and His ways instead of the Lamb and His ways, they worship the beast. Leads to our third heading, the call for patient endurance. After seeing the two beasts, John sees the triumphant Lamb standing on Mount Zion, the place of the throne in the capital city, the New Jerusalem. He and his army of followers, the 144,000, remember they were sealed back in chapter 7, okay, and turned out to be an innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe, language, and people. You know, in chapter 7, John what? Remember? We'll just go over it briefly for those that to just catch you up or if you weren't here. He hears who's going to be sealed. And what does he hear? 144,000. And he goes line by line, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from this tribe. Of course, the irony in all that is 10 of those tribes were no longer in existence. I mean, those people were long since gone to the ends of the earth. You couldn't find them if you wanted to. But here they are, this perfect Israel restored. He hears, just like remember in chapter 5, I heard that the line of the tribe of Judah had conquered. And so I looked to see him, and what did I see? A lamb slain. I hear 144,000. Then he turns to see. What does he see? An innumerable company from every nation, tribe, language, and people. A mongrel group. How in the world are they this? How is this that? But that's what goes on in this book. Rearranging how we think about things. So he finds this lamb, triumphant, standing on Mount Zion, the throne place, the throne room of the capital city of the new creation, the new Jerusalem. He and his army of followers, these 144,000, stand victorious. And they sing a new song. And the significance of singing a new song isn't that it's new. Like, wow, they just came up with a new tune. No, that's not the significance. New songs were sung in the Old Testament when triumph had been had, when a victory, when God had worked a great deliverance, a rescue, a salvation. So here they are singing a new song. Why? Because they've been victorious over the beast. And we discover something that distinguishes them, something that explains why they were victorious. They were virgins. Now in our sex-crazed culture, we immediately get stuck on how unlikely this would be. What are the odds you could find 144,000 virgins, first of all, anywhere? We want to take it literally. Yet, adultery and fornication are the most common metaphor for idolatry in the prophets of the Old Testament. God was Israel, Israel was God's wife, so God was cast as Israel's husband. And in Revelation, the bride's husband is the lamb. To worship the beast, to enter into the idolatry of the empire, to give allegiance to the beast rather than to the lamb, is to be unfaithful to the one to whom we are betrothed. Who are these 144,000? They're the true followers of the lamb. Many were once idolaters, to be sure, but they were washed, they were sanctified, and they were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, as Paul told the Corinthians. Amen? Now they no longer live in compromise with the empire. To be faithful to the Lamb, to remain virgins, if you will. And by the way, this means that if you're married, you can still get into <laughs> this company of people. Isn't that great news? It's a metaphor for our worship. But to be faithful to the Lamb requires saying no to the beast and everything tied to him and his, and his system. 
To remain faithful, we are told twice, it calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Worded a little differently in the second one, but the same point's the same. Many Christians are trying to figure out who the Antichrist is or when all this will happen, rather than asking why they need to have patient endurance and what it means for them to be faithful in following the Lamb. Those are the important questions. We get sidetracked. We get distracted by unimportant questions. Questions for which we're never going to get an answer because we're not intended to get those answers. Remember, the second beast sets up images of the first beast, as we read earlier, to be worshipped. The followers of the Lamb, we know, all the way through Scripture, they're not allowed to worship images. No, because God would never, the true God would never allow an image of Himself to be made that would be worshipped, but rather, He makes humans in His image so that they can act like Him, so that they can serve like Him, so that they can give of themselves like He does, that they can lay down their lives like He does. And so we are to be image bearers and not image worshipers. Our foreheads and our hands, our thinking, it's our foreheads, and our doing, that's our hands, are being all marked up with the beast while we are concerned about credit card scanners and insertable computer chips. We need to be concerned about what we're thinking and what we're doing. Thank you for that, amen, whoever that was. Appreciate that. To live free from the beast, the church must embrace the ways of the Lamb, the ways of patience, building a church. Listen, building a church should be more like building a cathedral in the Middle Ages than it is like building a skyscraper today. See, we want to build churches like skyscrapers. I mean, downtown, go downtown. You'll see 46-story towers going up over the course of a year. It's mind-boggling, and trust me, the impact will be mind-boggling too one day. But nonetheless... They can do amazing things, but that's not how Christ builds His church. It's more like building the cathedrals of the Middle Ages. People who start it, the people who draw the plans up, they're dead long before it's finished. They're all working for another generation. For another people, another place. It's not about them. They're going to give their lives away for something that will be realized later. And that's how the kingdom works. To live free from the beast, the church must embrace the ways of the one despised and rejected by man and not the ways that uh, try to attract the, by being the hippest, the, the sexiest, the coolest thing, uh, or by hoping that we were those things, even if we're not. To live free from the beast, the church must cease hoping that the empire enforces our way of life and begin counting the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. You know, back a generation or two ago, people in the church grieved when suddenly people were allowed to to go to the theater on Sunday instead of go to church. They thought, man, that's just going to destroy the society. But you know what? It's probably the best thing that ever happened to the church. Finally, we had some competition and people just didn't come because it was the only thing going. You actually had to pay a price to go. You could be doing something else, and plenty of them did. And we should rejoice at that. 
Strange way to think, I know. We've got to rework our thinking, but we need to realize that it isn't the government's job to enforce the worship of Christ. When, when did the lamb marry the beast? Well, maybe in the day of Constantine, but that's another discussion. <clears throat> a young pastor I recently have come to know in the St. Louis area shared how a man getting out of a nearby jail came to their church for help. Some from the church created a support team and began to tap all the resources available to, to them in the community to help this man, Casey, this pastor. He commented that all the resources that were available for this man were from churches. And he made this comment. Small ones, none you would have ever heard of. You see, this church provided one thing, and that church provided another thing, and then another church provided this other thing. And they were impacting this man's life, but you probably would never even notice that those churches existed. Someone else in that conversation referenced Jesus' parable about how the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, hidden, unseen. See, it's not the big splashy stuff of empire that elicits worship, but the hidden, unseen stuff like a mustard seed. You say, yes, but, but that mustard seed's going to grow to be really big. Yes, it's going to be a mustard plant, the biggest bush in the garden. We fight the beast and his system with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. As Paul told the Corinthians, we fight the beast and his system with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left. We bow to the beast when we use weapons of righteousness in the right hand and weapons of this world in the left. We bow to the beast when we use weapons of righteousness in the right hand and weapons of this world in the left. The son of some friends of, of mine recently completed his military service obligation. After the ceremony for that leaving, retirement, as it were, from the military, he stepped into the shower, he told his parents. And it felt like all the sin of the last eight years washed down the drain. You see, in his service to our country, he was ordered to do things that in his natural life he would never do. Things that made him feel filthy. Thank God that there is a bath available in the blood of the Lamb. There's a bath available. We were washed. You were, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. But the beast demands some things from us that we are not to ultimately give it. Anytime rulers or empires demand allegiance to a way of life that is contrary to the Lamb and His ways, they have become the beast. Anytime people give allegiance to the beast in His ways instead of the Lamb and His ways, they worship the beast. Just some closing thoughts. Paul Brand, you may never have heard of him, but he understood the ways of the Lamb. He was a physician, an orthopedic surgeon, the son of missionaries. He developed numerous techniques for the healing of hands. He received numerous prestigious medical awards. He could have lived in luxury and accumulated great wealth. 
He spent most of his career in leprosy sanatoriums working to bring healing to these patients in conditions most of us would be unwilling to work in or live in. He developed much of the knowledge we have today about that disease and brought comfort, care, and healing to multiplied thousands. When doing a Bible study for a small group of patients, he would pray and prepare for hours to deliver a message worthy of hundreds, not the five to ten that might be in the room. The church could learn from him. The effectiveness of a church will not be measured by its real estate or how many services they have. It will be measured by the ways it does business, the ways it treats people, the ways it is willing to be unseen leaven, bringing life to the world around in invisible ways. The, The church needs to learn that we will win the battle against the beast, not by bearing the image of John Wayne or Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Liam Neeson, but Mother Teresa or shall I say, of the Lamb slain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is so much that I don't understand about the beast and his ways. There's so much we don't understand. But this imagery that you've given us in your word, it will truly help us recognize the beast. He's not bound to one political system or one economic system, but he'll morph himself into any and all of them. And we as your people, must discern that we do not belong to one political system or another, but we belong to that of the Lamb and to the economic system of the Lamb, a, lamb, a, a manna economy, a, a jubilee economy, an economy that's so unlike anything this world offers. Lord Jesus, help us to be faithful followers of you. To cease from our idolatries. To be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Lord, each of us, maybe even as I spoke, there were things that were pricked in our hearts. Speak to us, Lord. Draw out the dross from our hearts and remove it. In Jesus' name.